Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. All right. Thanks for coming down this morning. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Madison Sourdough is um, got to be one of um, my favorite local food businesses. And and we worked together. When was it? Oh, maybe Three years, years ago, ago, I think. Yeah, yeah. isn't that crazy? Yeah, it feels like yesterday. It feels like it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was at the time that you were expanding into the... Um, the other part of the building. other yeah. part of the building, yep. yeah. Yeah. Yep. Our landlord had said, you know, it, it's available. It, it, it's We've been looking and either you take it or we're going to put somebody else in here. And, and so it was kind of forced us to to do to go for it. Right, so. right, right. Well, now you have a way to, to view all kinds of things. So um, food is theater is definitely come to Madison Sourdough. So why don't we start out because our listeners um, will not know Madison Sourdough. Um, so why don't you, why don't we start out by you introducing yourself and your business and how you got into this? Well, I, I, I came to it um, as uh, an ex-banker and somebody who God, hadn't... I forgot that about somebody you, that who you were hadn't, a banker. <laughs> so it's like, how do you go from that to, to the food business? Well, I, you know, when I was young, my mom was a baker and mm. she baked bread every Saturday. And uh, it was kind of in my soul. And before I left home, she said, you're, you're not leaving home until you learn how to bake bread. I don't know why. I don't think she did that with all my siblings. So it's nice. It was just you? I, I don't... I, my sister, one of my sisters bakes, but it's like, I don't know what it was, but, um, but so I, my mom taught me to bake bread and there's something about the aroma of the fresh bread that just once it's in your soul, it's really hard to get it out. And, uh, so I was a hobby baker for, you know, all my, when I was doing other stuff, that was like what I did for fun at home. Mm. Um, and so, uh, I went back to the UW and got an MBA in entrepreneurship. But at the time, my kids were in elementary school, and I really didn't want to be doing an 80-hour-a-week thing. So I went to uh, to work as a banker. I was a, a small business lender, and it was really a fascinating um, segment of my career because I was able to work with lots and lots of businesses that are about the same size we are now. And it made me realize that the, nobody's perfect. There's all these businesses that are successful in the sense of, you know, they're doing okay. People are, they're paying the bills. They're, you know, they're making a living, but they're not perfect. There's, mm-hmm. there's a mm-hmm. huge weakness that if they could just fix this one thing, it'd be way more than what it is. And then it's just the nature of small businesses because you're not big enough to have a robust management team. You can't have a full-time marketing person and a full-time this and a full-time that. So you got to do a little bit of everything. And, and we all, none of us can be that great at every aspect there is. And so every small business really has at least one, maybe two or three relatively big weaknesses. And it made me realize, well, you know, when this opportunity comes along for me, I, I don't have to worry about it's not that you don't strive for being better, but if you're not perfect, it's not like it's going to be the end of the world or you're going to go down the drain because you're not 
excellent at everything there is. That so. is such an incredible insight, actually. I think because I have had the same, I've had the same idea that people from the outside think that everything is working perfectly on the inside. You know what I mean? In yeah. a business, yeah. right? And right. the truth is it's probably some degree of chaos inside no. all the time, right? No, people see you on, like, it's Saturday morning and the cafe's full of people and there's a line at the door and people think you must, you know, everything's perfect. You must just have money coming out of your ears. Right, it's right. like, there's... well, no, it actually, actually doesn't quite work that way. <laughs> <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that crazy? So, okay, so, so you so were me, a lender. So I was a lender, lender and then uh, and then... It was for me. It was a, it was a it was a really boring job. I did. I'm not the right kind of person to be a lender because I love. I have a high tolerance for risk, and the bank had a very 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 low tolerance for oh, risk. Right. Yes. And so there were people that were doing things that I wanted to work with, and and the the organization was like, well, no, we don't lend to those type of people, and it was, and then they started doing other things where they were putting in these policies that were designed to to hit, you know, to get money off of low-income people and whatnot. I was like, I don't want to be part of that. Yeah. So I left, and I went into commercial real estate, and I did that for a few years, and then the recession hit, and so I was really... You know, nobody was doing anything in that industry at that point. And so I was right, looking around. Right, it was blacklisted. And so I yeah. worked in my wife's food cart for uh, for a year. I didn't know your wife had a food cart. My wife cart. had a Japanese food cart just uh-huh. a couple blocks from here at Library Mall. Yeah. And uh, that was a fun, fun year. I loved the vibe of Library Mall and yeah. being down there and seeing every protest that started at the <laughs> at down there and walked out of the Capitol and all the musicians and everything. What a fun! That was a fun year. But um, th- you know, this opportunity to to get involved with Madison Sourdough just kind of fell into my lap and went and I I interviewed for a job there. And mm-hmm. within the first week I was there, the owner said, well, I'm thinking about selling. Are you interested in buying it? What a hoot. <laughs> so when you when you went there to work there, what was the position you were going there? Just, to I went to work there as a baker. As a baker, really? Yeah. yeah. Holy cow. And of course, I, I you know, know so this was something that I had always hoped that at some point an opportunity is going to come my way and, and something will happen and I'll get into a business and it it was the perfect time in my life because my youngest child was off to college at that point and so I was like well yeah now I have the time to work 80 hours a week and and not I don't care about my kids but you know they're not at home anymore so and my wife travels 50% of the time for her job so was really a pretty good time in my life to to be doing that kind of thing. Isn't that interesting? So um, I I I um, I think people think that entrepreneurs are all young, right? There's this oh yeah you have to be 23, and I think in part partly that's true because you're much more likely to be less risk averse when you're young and have less to lose in a way, but. Um, I, I tell people I, I was I had one of my kids was still home in high school, you know, in that phase where she drove and thought I was irrelevant anyway. So mm-hmm. um, that and my other two were gone in college already when I started Tara's Way, kind of for the same reason that that now I finally felt like wow I actually have enough time to um, to devote to a business which was kind of like my surrogate child, right? Yeah. And that's so Madison Sourdough was like that for you too. So it was and and uh, 
when I was when I was getting started, um, Andrew Hutchison, my current business partner, um, wasn't going. He had been working there for four years, and and he knew the business pretty well on the production side. And the owner had asked him if he was interested, but he was so young, and he just said, "I don't think I really want to. I'm not. This is not the right thing for me at this point in my life." But then he had a change of heart, and we really uh, hit it off really well together. And we decided to to go in together and do it as a as a partnership, even though, you know, that's one of the rules that you never do a, a 50-50 partnership. But it worked really well. I think we have a similar vision. I think we tend to see um, the world in in a in a similar quirky way that a lot of people um, don't necessarily see things the way we do. But um, but. It, I think it allows us to to have a, a similar vision, and uh, it's where it's worked out well. So you know, one of the first things was where are we gonna where are we gonna be? The business was basically a wholesale company in a in a strip mall on the west side of Madison, and it really didn't make sense. We had to decide right away. You know, are we gonna? It's not a good location for retail. If we want to do retail. We need to be kind of where the action is, either downtown or on the near east side of Madison. And and if we want to be strictly wholesale, then we should move out to a to a you know lower rent facility and just do wholesale. We can't we can't do both, and uh, you can't do wholesale and, and pay retail rent. That doesn't right. that's not a setup for so success. So the wholesale business was to restaurants at that point. At that point, we or were doing. Some restaurants, some coffee shops, some grocery stores. Okay. So kind of a mix of pastry and mm-hmm. bread, and uh, the you know the pastries kind of drive the the schedule that you know those coffee shops are going to open up at six thirty or six o'clock in the morning. They've got to have their pastries ready to go. That kind of pushes everything you do back. You know four hours before that to get started, basically. And you had trucks at the time. We had. Uh, the the company had two, uh, three vans. Okay, the little Madison sourdough vans you see running around, or were they big ones? Uh, two of the vans that we still use came with the company, mm-hmm. and then we've uh, gotten a, a, a smaller one and a bigger one also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty much a hundred percent wholesale when you bought it. I wouldn't say it was a hundred percent. We also did. Two farmers markets. Oh, okay. Farmers on Saturdays, markets, yeah. And then we also had a, we had a little retail shop in the front, but you know it was the kind of thing where baker you'd hit the hit a bell, and a baker would walk up from the back a couple minutes later and wait on you. So it, it, it was right. It, and it's the location isn't where we were. It just was not really set up for that because. If you if you're a morning company, you need to be on the right hand side for morning traffic. And we were on the left hand side, so you had to get off at a stoplight, come into this you know thing, go back and go back out to the stoplight. It was really a 15 minute thing just to stop and get a croissant on their way to work. And nobody's, right, right. Nobody's going to do that. So, so if you can if you can be on the right hand side. Okay, remember can, that everybody got to be on the morning, right hand if side. If you're a morning yeah. company, yeah, you, that's that's the way. I mean, it makes a huge difference. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Well, there you go. Okay, right hand side. If you're a morning company, we got it. I mean, either that, or you're just located in a a spot where there is tremendous amount of foot traffic and bike traffic and. 
people will just come out of the woodwork. And if you right. and if you're doing it really well, you get the right hand side of the morning <laughs> commute, and you've got the the embedded neighborhood that people are going to support you. And so that's, I think, um, one of the things we did well was we put ourselves in that type of a spot where we've got both of those things going for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you found a new location. We did find a new location, yeah. It worked out pretty well for us that, you know, it was the height of the recession. There were lots of open spaces everywhere, and um, that worked in our favor really well because uh, they probably, you know, if business was booming, they probably would have said, uh, sorry, no, you Can guys don't Can you imagine what it would take to get your your current location now? No, it's, uh, yeah. it's really, it would it would be almost impossible. Yeah. So you got that location in the middle of the recession, and it's, um, I don't know, how many blocks are you from the Capitol Square? We're, I mean, we're nine blocks east nine. of the Capitol. Yeah. In a, in a neighborhood that's just booming. In a neighborhood that people are passionate about mm-hmm. um, supporting local businesses, and people walk and bike, and it's, um, it's a really growing thing. People want to be in the urban downtown area and so we kind of felt like as soon as the recession was over that part of town had so many empty spots that that at some point it was just going to start to fill in and become a more vibrant downtown neighborhood mm-hmm. and fill in around us really well and yeah. so we felt like the the long-term prospects for that neighborhood would be terrific and you know because you you started your business not from scratch but by buying an existing business that kind of gave you the time for the un- for the neighborhood to to do what it did right yeah it yeah. definitely made a it would have been that was i think one of the things we did well too is we you know we could have started from scratch but we had a, a brand that people knew mm-hmm. and we had um a product that was really good mm-hmm. and so that was a pretty good spot to start from yeah absolutely okay so you and your partner um Bought the business. So did you have piles of money in the bank, no, both of you, to buy this business? No, we did not have or? piles. Uh, you didn't? No piles, a, huh? A lot of family business on, you know, Drew's family helped out tremendously. And, and, um, and you know, it was it was crazy. The, the uh, landlord agreed to do most of our build-out and build that into our rent. And then we timed the move where we were moving into, you know, we had, we knew that enough about the business to know that there was a lot of seasonality to it. Because of the farmer's markets, we knew that our cash flow was going to be really, really strong from May through October, November. And it was going to be really, really bad. You know, it was going to be negative cash flow in the wintertime. So we... we timed it so that we moved into the new spot on April 15th. Perfect tax and, day. And uh, or it was right around that week of the f- middle of April. And the opening of the farmer's market. the opening market. of the yeah. farmer's market. And so we basically just kind of bootstrapped that that first year from moving in right at the time when our cash flow was going to be the best. Wow. Good for you. And did you so – you, so Madison Sourdough – made sourdough bread, right, mm-hmm. from the beginning. Did you change the products then when when you took over? Or? Well, we were basically making four products when we took over mm-hmm. on the bread side plus maybe a dozen paste, types of pastries. Okay. Um, and 
we had we had a lot of things. Oh no, there was more than that. There were there were four things we sold in grocery stores, mm. but there were also some uh, pan breads that we were selling to restaurants. So there's more than that. But we the first first year or two we didn't kill a single product. All we did was we added on around what we had and mm-hmm. and added things and we added added and added and then after maybe four or five years we started to phase out some mm-hmm. of the things that had been there for a long time and you know what that's a typical thing with product management product line management right that that is a natural tendency um, and products have life cycles right they mm-hmm. don't it, everything doesn't last forever and consumers are fickle and they change and but anytime so, you you retire a product you're going to have people oh, that are so yes, mad and yeah. and you just have to say you know Sales were declining, and mm-hmm. we have this new thing. Tr- give this a try, and yeah. usually when we explain it, people are okay with yeah. it. But sometimes people are just can't imagine losing that thing that they always. Because people tend to get in these routines, and they always get the same thing. And if you always came in and you got our our white sourdough, and suddenly that product's going away, it's like oh my my world's coming to an end. Right, or or it's not even. You still have the white sourdough, but it has more, I don't know, you're using different grains, so it's a little different color. Then there are people who will go, oh, it's a different color, you know, it's even though it's the same product. Yeah. Well, one of the funny battles that we fight is that in the United States, people tend to think of sourdough as a white bread. Yeah. And if you go to to San Francisco, there's a lot of, you know, white sourdough that's... Mm -hmm. and. Even a lot of chefs will their shorthand is I'll have the you know ten loaves of the sourdough and and twelve loaves of the country. That's that's what our chefs how they place their orders. So it's a really common thing that people think of white bread is sourdough. A lot of bakeries will do a lot of conventional yeasted breads and they'll do one, one sourdough, sourdough and right. it's sourdough is a white bread. Right. And what one of the educational things we try to get our customers to understand is sourdough is just wild yeast. It's just a way to leaven bread. You could make Mm. just about anything that you make with conventional yeast. You could make it with sourdough and it'll taste different. It'll have the lactobacilli and the, the sour culture in it. But it's just a way to make bread. It's not a style of bread, per se, even though Americans tend to think of it that way. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so you took over the business, and you had a partner, you and, um, you and Andrew. And were you um, clear about who was going to do what from the beginning? Or did that kind of evolve, or how did that Well, go? you know, at the time we started, we had seven or eight people in the business. And, right. And it was a lot different. Uh, I was baking the first year. Oh, you were baking. I, baking. I didn't realize yeah. that. I baked for the maybe the first nine months of, of well, maybe, I don't know how many months, but I baked mm-hmm. for quite a while, and that was something I felt like was important for me to know that. But, um, but Drew loves baking more than anything in the world, and once... You know, if he's not baking, it's, you know, for him, the I think the most happy thing is when he's there by himself mm. baking, you know, pulling loaves out of the retarder and putting them in the oven. And if there's usually a baker who starts the day a couple hours before everybody else and it's quiet or you can put your own music on. There's no phone ringing. There's no, there's nothing else. You just, and I think that's like his favorite 
hour. And that's like two in the morning or yeah, something, that's, right? Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's one o'clock now. But yeah. that's his favorite hour of the day is when mm-hmm. he's, you know, doing that early stuff. And if he's got a full bakery, it's, you know, that's, the other stuff is not as much fun. So, you know, as you get bigger as a company, there's a lot of other things that need to happen. And so, um, you know, it made sense with my background in baking that I would be doing other types of finance and supervising other things that need to happen in the office to keep the bakers baking as much as possible and keep the, you know, the chefs cooking as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So you got, so you kind of evolved into the, uh, let's call it the business manager side of the business. And, and I know this is a oversimplification, but he, and he, toward the baking side and product Probably development. Operation, operation management, mm-hmm. uh, R&D, mm-hmm. new product development, um, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. So um, you went in your new, in your new um, location and your new location had a much bigger, more prominent front of house to it. Yes, it did. And that, you know, it was all, we built it from scratch. They really gutted it down to the studs and rebuilt it for us. Um, but um, we put in a, a front of house so that we could do not just a bakery, but also do food production and started a restaurant at the same time when we opened that up. Mm. And, and um, that was part of what we wanted to do is was have a, um, you know, to to make the, you know, it's called vertical integration where you take one thing and then you use it to do the next thing in the process. Mm -hmm. And so, you you know, we were already doing the bread. Well, what if you make the bread and then you turn it into a sandwich? You you should have an advantage over your competitors if you've got a vertically integrated business. Mm -hmm. If you're doing both reasonably well, um, it should reduce your cost of goods on your restaurant if you can supply yourself for a Mm -hmm. key component of it and so that was one of the part of the strategy that we wanted to do was to Mm -hmm. to have a vertically integrated business and so the other thing was we wanted to just kind of showcase hey here's what you can do with this bread and see how good it is when you make the sandwich on it you know if you're a chef and you a lot of the chefs in Madison live in that area so Mm -hmm. they come in and they get breakfast and they go wow that was pretty good now you're maybe you're thinking well, I should get that product for my restaurant too. Mm-hmm. So we thought it would have kind of this. It would have a benefit that the retail would benefit the wholesale and vice versa. And did that happen? Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. When we moved in there, we had maybe 25 wholesale accounts, and in let's see how many years. In seven years, we've kind of quadrupled the mm-hmm. number of wholesale accounts we have. And yeah, we I see chefs in there all the time. Yeah, yeah. So your restaurant is open for breakfast and lunch, am I breakfast right about that? Breakfast and lunch, yeah. yes. Yeah. And then do you do um, takeout sandwiches and that kind of thing too, or not so much? We, or? You know, we'll take to-go orders, mm-hmm. but it's not really the foundation of our business. We're right. really, a lot of the things that, like, like really good eggs and omelets, mm-hmm. They're not going to travel all that well right. if they're done well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they'll be rubbery if you mm-hmm. put them in a to-go container and eat them 30 minutes later. Mm-hmm. So we're not really trying to be a to-go place. We're mm-hmm. really trying to be you come in and you sit down and you have some food. Um, 
but we do take to-go orders. Although there have been some Saturdays and Sundays where it's so, like on graduation Sunday, we have so many customers in the place that there have been times when I just said, let's not take any more to-go orders right now because we just got to take care of all the people that are here right now. So I have... um I have, in the last year, um, a lot of times when I come to your place, there are, it's packed. You've been incredibly busy. Um, It seems like, anyway. Yeah, I think every year has been a little bit better than the year Mm -hmm. before for us. Mm -hmm. We haven't gone backwards in any one year. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not that we believe in growth for the sake of growth. Mm -hmm. What we do believe in is that we want to get better at what we do and find ways to improve mm-hmm. on our customer service and product quality. And I think if you do that, if you're getting better and you're giving people a good product and a good, you know, a smile and a, mm-hmm. and a good customer service, um, you're just going to inherently get more customers. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what, what we believe in. And your products are, are really unique, too. I mean, I, it just... The flavor and the product line, um, yeah, as it has evolved, as you be, you keep getting more and more unique as you evolve. I, I think. I think. Yeah, I think we keep adding new things that are pretty interesting and yeah. pretty, pretty good. Yeah. So when I started working with you, that was as we said maybe three years ago. You were um, your landlord had approached you about taking the site next door. And part of the reason you wanted to do that was to put in a mill. Um, yes, we so, did. so you have the most beautiful grain mill I've ever seen. It's like a it's like a sculpture. That was one of the reasons why we picked it. Was it's it is a work of art. It's it's really finely crafted. Comes from Austria. It costs way more than the mills you can get in the United States. Mm-hmm. But it, aside from looking really cool, it also has an, some other features that make it really perfect for what we do. It's a stone mill, and in the millstones are are uh, situated horizontally rather than mm-hmm. vertically, which means they can spin at much lower RPMs, and and so it doesn't create as much heat in a vertical mm-hmm. mill. Uh, you've got to spin it faster, typically, to, so before gravity pulls the grain out from the bottom. And that extra RPMs is going to heat up the grain, and you're going to lose some flavor and nutrition the more you heat it up. Mm-hmm. So it has that mm-hmm. advantage, too. But it does. It looks really cool, and that was one of the things we wanted. It's wood. That's it's made out of wood. Yeah. And, you know, we weren't sure if, if our health inspectors would look at it and say, no, you can't right, do that. Right. But, uh, you know, this is... You know, it's it's a design they've been using for a long, long, long time in Europe. You know, the only addition is instead of water power, it's, you know, hooked up to electrical current. But it's a design other than that that's existed probably 100 years in as well. And they're all over in Europe. Right. Um, and aren't those stones from some They're from place? the Greek island of Naxos. Of so course. They've got Naxos, a lot of, right? So, yeah, they've got a lot of abrasives in the, in the marble there for some reason. And it works really well as a millstone. Um, but it's a, it's a really, it's a cool thing to have. We've got a window that people can see what we're doing. And... Um, you know, I wish we could do more show and tell of this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it and this is how we're doing it and this is the effect it has. But it's definitely had a, a really big impact on our product quality. 
because with with fresh st- uh, stone ground flour, the fresher it is, the better it's going to be. You've got all the germ of the of the wheat or whatever grain. It just gets and gets crushed into the grain, and it's really volatile. And if you can use it really quickly, it's you're going to notice a, a profound flavor boost. Versus if it's if it starts to get old, you're going to lose that. And so, having it, being able to build it into our that's the you know the first step in our process that it gets milled and we're milling we're for what we're going to use you know a day or two later, so it never sits in our facility for very long at all until we use it. And uh, that would be you know that was even though we were getting a local source previously, it was a weekly delivery and might have been there for a week. It might have been two or three weeks old, and just the difference between a two or three week old fresh milled flour and a, and a two day old or one day old is, is pretty significant. So do you know, um, in the, in, you probably do know this, in um, flour, um, from a regulatory perspective, um, how long can people keep flour on inventory before, you know, you have to set your expiration date on flour after it's milled. Is it like years? I, that's a good question. I, I need to research that more. I don't really know the answer to that. Yeah. Um, so in, I, in the whey protein business, I was shocked to discover that it's two years. With a lot of these dry powders, it's a long time. And so one of the things that I always suspected with Tara's whey was um, because we, we actually dried our you know whey and, um, and then put it in our own brand right away, my suspicion has always been that that the quality of that product was better because it didn't sit in a warehouse somewhere for a year or two before it got blended into my product. Yeah, well, you know, the conventional flour, they take out the the germ and and the volatile parts of it are not there. And it is Probably designed, so it could sit there for yeah, a long time, Yeah, right? absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, the stone mills kind of went out of favor, you know, way back in the 1800s. And, um, you know, people didn't go shopping as often then, and they needed a product that could be shelf-stable for months at a time. And so uh, a stone mill probably would not have worked as well as from that standpoint. Because it's not designed to separate out the... Right. Right. But as we know, with things like Twinkies and whatnot, it just, be, you know, those things that can sit on a shelf for years... You know, there's probably something wrong with that. Right, it'll it'll survive in the you know in the, for for years in the in the dump. Right, you'll yeah. go back in and find the Twinkies. Yeah. So okay, so your um your stone milling um, whole grain essentially, and yeah, that's we're going buying, into your bread. We're buying uh, rye and wheat and corn and um, corazon wheat and things like that, and we're milling it and and turning that into fresh milled flour and then turning that into sandwiches and bread and then sandwiches. So, yeah, it's now we've got... No wonder they're so good, those sandwiches. So, okay, your, um, when you switched over to this, did my, my example of your white bread changing, did that happen when you started milling your own flour? I, I'm not... I can't remember the point in time when we got rid of our, our straight-up white um, sourdough that we used to sell in grocery stores. I think it was before before you started mill. milling, mm-hmm. or maybe it was about that time. But um, but yeah, we we noticed an a, an improvement in our breads immediately when we started doing that. I mean, our 
our experimentation with the mill was kind of gradual. It was just, it wasn't like we switched everything over to it. It was, you know, try it on a small scale, build it into a new product, try to see how that is, do some test runs on some of the existing ones and add this part of it component with the mill and see how it is. And it, so it was kind of a gradual introduction, not a not a uh, all at once we went from this to that. Right, right. And you buy your grains now from um, local producers, right? As much as we can, we're getting from from local. I mean, there's like Kamut is is a grain that you can only get from Montana for. Oh, it's okay. A, it's a it's something that they've some Montana farmers got a trademark on it, hmm. and nobody else can can call their Corazon Kamut, mm-hmm. and we really like what Kamut does. We've used it a lot in bread and, and our scones and mm-hmm. other things. So there's some that we get from other places because you can't get it here. Well, and but you know what? It's it's local to Montana. So it's, you know what I mean? I, I think local is wonderful, but I also think there are other dimensions to all of this that are important too. So Yeah. But as much as we can, what we really are trying to work with is is a, a local grain market that's really different than the conventional grain market that exists um, in you know the mainstream agriculture grain market, and it's it's got it's it's a hard long slog to get it to get this thing going because there's a lot of differences between what we're looking for and and what conventional grain production what their parameters are. You know the conventional bakery is is using these really, really high-gluten, high-protein flour. They beat it really hard with this really aggressive mixer and go really quickly from the mixer to the oven. And we're doing a very different process where we're way more gentle with it. We're doing a first step um, after, after milling. The next step is do pre-ferments where you just mix some flour and some water or some flour and water and yeast or flour, water, sourdough, and you just set it out, let it, let those organisms go to work on it for a day or half a day or whatever, and then, um, and then add that to the mix the next day when we mix it. So, Mm -hmm. so what we're doing is we're not pounding it. We don't need the high the super high gluten, and and it's really hard to c- convince everyone else that's switching over this. You know, the high protein isn't really what we're looking for. It's does it stand up to fermentation, and you know how does how does it taste? Mm-hmm. Um, those are the things we're looking for, and and it's you know they've got this these blinders on that says I'm looking for, you know, 15% protein or really high protein, and we're no, well. We need protein, but it doesn't have to be that high. Right. You know, a lot of what we have used when we buy white flour is all-purpose flour. Mm-hmm. So we're what we're doing is very different. And so what we're trying to do is get a, a local grain supply chain off the ground. And for any supply chain to work, you're going to need to have many, many players at each step of the way. You need a lot of options for people that are growing it you need they need to have lots of places that they can go to and well I could go here and with different it, seeds or and different go, varieties and right. different yeah or I could yeah. go there with it and then you know they need and to you have can't options. be like their only it customer be, right? yeah no when 
you know, when when uh, we were just getting started with this in 2012, I went down to Kansas and got a van load of some turkey red wheat and, and gave it to three farmers that were you know, nearby to, to just to try and see what would happen with it if we mm-hmm. did some small batches with it. And, it, you know, it was a pretty successful little trial, but one of the farmers said, well, let's, you know, let's keep this, don't let anyone else have this, mm-hmm. you know. And this is, this is an open source, it's, a, right. it's not a, it's not a, something that anyone has a copyright on. It's so a, didn't, am I right heirloom. that that came from a Mennonite community? I, I grew up in a Mennonite community, okay. and my ancestors, my my great-great-grandfather and that mm-hmm. generation of Mennonites came from the Crimea mm. to uh, Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, you know, and, and up and down kind of that north-south line. Where that's how far you went at that point in time if you were settling. Um, they came uh, at a time when uh, they had been given a, a hundred years of not having to to go into the military because they were religious pacifists, oh, and yeah. and uh, the Russian czar was was reneging and saying, "Well, you, so much so for much that. For we, that. Need, we need we need you, you now." now. Right. And so they were right. they were unhappy with with mm-hmm. their situation, and so they were looking and more than they had these colonies that had I don't know a hundred thousand. More than 50% of them all left in a two-year period. I mean, mm. they just up and left, and nobody was there to buy their houses. I mean, imagine what that would be like to just take up everything and, and go. Yeah. And so they they had been using turkey red wheat there in the Crimea, and so they came and they looked for places that that were similar, and that was the central Kansas was very similar to the situation they had. And within and at that point. Wisconsin was the leading wheat producer at that point in time. Isn't that crazy? People and don't realize that about Wisconsin. <laughs> so, you know, we're all we're all dairy here, but yeah, we and were with, a big wheat producer. And within uh, within a few years, Kansas was the number one wheat producer, and by the turn of the century, Turkey Red Wheat was the number one wheat grown in the United States. I didn't realize that. And you know, they eventually that became the grandparent of. They crossed it with shorter breeds to get modern wheat. But that was that, you know, the DNA of that is in modern wheat. Interesting. I didn't realize that. So, so, so anyway, turkey red so is a tur- tall, it's, tur- it's red, traditional yeah. wheat, right? It's a very yeah. tall wheat. It tends to lodge, which means it falls over before you harvest it. And so that was one of the reasons they went to shorter varieties that had is a that sturdy. Just, is that just because it's more convenient to harvest if it's not, it hasn't lodged, or is it a quality issue for people? I think it's a quality issue. If it lodges, it's going to be on the ground. It mm-hmm. might sprout. It, right. It's going to it's going to be really hard to pick it up and harvest it mm-hmm. if it's lodged. And so okay. it's it's a real problem if that happens. Mm-hmm. My understanding is that at, at least the early stage of of um, of breeding wheat was to get it shorter yeah. for that, like, um, probably for that reason. Yeah, it, either that or m- make the stock a little bit more sturdy and less likely to lodge. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's, mm-hmm. yeah. So anyway, this was part of my history. It was when, yeah. when we started to go back to, to uh, you know, trying to get something going. There are other things that could could potentially work and might work better in Wisconsin. But 
that was kind of my starting point that I was familiar with turkey red wheat. I found a farmer that was growing it in western Kansas. He actually wasn't a Mennonite, but he got it from, uh, I think, a Mennonite or Amish farmer originally. And uh, I went down and got a van load and brought it back and started growing. And now there's, you know, in the last five years, there's there's a lot more farmers that are growing. There's several mills. in West, I, There's at least three or four other, you know, millers that are growing, milling wheat. There's, there's, you know, the weak link is is in the supply chain are the people that are using that fresh milled uh, grain. And it's, if you think about our, our local food system here in Wisconsin, you go to a farmer's market, look at all the options you have for fruit or for veggies or for meat. Well, what's missing? You know, grains and flour, they're not there. And for some reason, people don't think of that as being as important for some reason. I well, really don't know. yeah, and I think that, you know, that. so I think this whole gluten-free thing has gotten people to, it, it, it's kind of like meat is like this to me, too, that there's, you know, that you have to ask yourself the question, okay, people ate bread for how long and didn't have, everybody wasn't gluten intolerant, like why is this and why is it that you know, cavemen ate meat and they didn't all die of, you know, it, it's what it's what we've done to the products over time, right? So yeah, you, though, your story yeah. about having all this gluten and regular flour, no wonder we're all gluten intolerant because we're getting bombarded with extra gluten right. that got put in. Right. It they've, isn't the wheat that's the problem. It's, yeah, I, I tend to believe that if, mm-hmm. if they had stayed, if they had kept the wheat the way it was up through World, World War II, and if people would continue to do sourdough and that pre-ferment is going to partially digest it for you, it's much easier for a lot of people to tolerate sourdough. So it's it's going from up until, you know, the commercial yeast wasn't even invented until the early 1900s. So everything was sourdough until that point. So then you got, you know, commercial yeast, you got people... Uh, changing the, the, what's in, what's in the wheat, and and then all the chemicals and all the stuff that people put on the wheat. I mean, dumping these chemicals right at the end and fumigants in the, you know, and the stuff they put in the wheat silos. There's a lot of things that are happening to conventional wheat that doesn't surprise me one bit that people feel bad when they eat it. Yeah, now, right. Now, is it the gluten 100% of the time that's making you feel bad? I, Probably not, but yeah, I can see it's why the if sum people total of all of that, if people probably. stop eating it, they're going to feel better. But maybe there's a different way they could eat wheat that they wouldn't feel bad. Right, right. So I, you know, and and there's a I think there's a version of that story with lots of food groups. Um, but I think grains have been particularly disadvantaged, you know, in the minds of consumers who are saying, nope, no weed, I'm not going to eat weed. Um, well, we're con- confident that it'll make a comeback once the the local grain market really becomes more and more robust. And, you, and do you have people telling you that they can't eat other other um, bread, but they can eat your bread? We do have people that tell us that. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Um the other thing I think is that people don't know. So, you know, you go to a farmer's market and you get vegetables. You kind of know how to cook with vegetables. Most, You know what to do with them, even if it's just chop it up and put it in a salad. Um, but if I buy wheat, I got to actually 
make bread with it or, or you know, I could buy wheat berries, but now I don't know how to mill them and I don't have a mill in my kitchen, right? There, so there's a whole kind of, right, there's a whole store of knowledge among consumers that needs to come back too in your supply chain of well, things here. There is, but, you know, there there have been some techniques that have come out in the last 20 years that maybe haven't gain traction, but there's like, there's no need versions of wheat that are so easy. Mm. It literally takes five minutes to put it together. Anyone could do it. Mm-hmm. And if, uh, if you look at the New York Times, Mark Bittman, no need method of bread making, I guarantee you, you can find it on the internet. You can do it in five minutes, and you'll be blown away by what you get from it. And uh, it would, I'm doing it and, for Thanksgiving, and and it would be easy. I mean, to, I mean, it would be perfect for the type of grains that we're getting and working with. Mm-hmm. Do you sell grain, in, by the way? We're at all? we're working on the packaging to sell our own flour, so it'll be coming probably by next year. We'll have something. Yeah, it it makes so much sense given your whole philosophy about things. So you're now milling. Um, you um, have these wonderful grains and this amazing process for how you make your bread. Um, one of my favorite breads you make is miche. Um, do you want to talk about miche? Sure. The the miche has it it harkens back to a time in in France several hundred years ago when a lot of small villages had communal ovens and each family they'd fire up the oven on once a, once a week each family would bring a big loaf and they would put their mark on it so they'd know whose loaf is whose and then you know you you do these big loaves that would take a long time to bake but because they're in the oven so long they get this incredible incredible caramelization but they they last for a whole week for whatever reason, for a variety of reasons. But um, that bread kind of fell by the wayside but was revived in France in the last 30 or 40 years and made kind of famous by the Poulon family. And there have been some other uh, bread-making books for home bakers that have highlighted the miche as well, too. Mm -hmm. And so um, so it's, it's, it's a bread that's making a comeback around the world, but I think you see it in... A number of bakeries, but I think Drew and I would probably feel like that's the one thing from our bakery that we'd love to have on our counter at all times. It's a wonderfully um, versatile loaf that you can do a lot of things with. It makes really, really good open-faced sandwiches. You know, there's this trend now to make um, avocado toast. That's probably the perfect bread for making an avocado toast or some kind of, you know, uh, toaster or open open face sandwich. There's a lot of types of open face sandwiches you can make with it, but it goes great with soup. Um, it's cheese. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah, it is the it and the crustiness of that bread. It's just and there and your stamp is this beautiful wheat um, shaft of wheat, right? It's well, just beautiful. We have changed our. Oh no, you've we, changed it. We've changed multiple times uh, since you we have. started. Okay. So basically, the way you you make that loaf right before it goes in the oven, you put a stencil over the top of the loaf, mm-hmm. and then you sprinkle it with flour, and so that leaves this stenciled flour on and then you that will bake into the bread and so we've done uh we've done one with wheat we've 
We've done a millstone design. Mm, mm-hmm. We've done our own logo on it. Mm, gosh. And I, I think that what we're doing now is a millstone mm-hmm. is, is what we've got going cool. now. Cool. Well, that's totally appropriate and given what you're doing. P- people have also brought their own logos to us and said, can you bake this loaf for a family gathering or a wedding or something? And we'll, we've done that for people too. So Wow. Wow. That that bread is just incredible. And and your comments about how long it will last on the counter, it's 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 an, an amazing. What why is it that that bread can last that way? I think one thing is the crust on it is so it's so crusty. Right. that it tends to hold in the moisture on the yeah, inside. Yeah, that makes sense. And nothing can penetrate <laughs> it. So it's just uh it it's designed to last and it's a sourdough bread. So the sourdough has that lower pH on it, and sourdough mm-hmm. breads just have a tendency to not mold for right. a long time. Right. So, uh, so it's a, it's it's a combination of the thick crust and the sourdough. So just listening to you talk, you hear so much passion and so much knowledge about the art of bread, right? And and I think that. Part of the success of your business is you, you and your partner's embracing of that. Um, I also know that you have been very smart about how you've how you've built this business incrementally over time. So, you know, having passion and knowing a lot about your product is just a part of this, right? Yeah, I, you have to be passionate if you lose the passion it's probably time to to get out but in terms of going about things when when I was uh, getting started the, everyone did these long elaborate business plans in business school and I think it's a it's a good skill to have but the newer paradigm for business planning is I think the lean startup model where you know you you put a lot of work into these five-year pro forma income statements, but it's all predicated on this one assumption that people are going to buy this product and this amount and this many people are going to walk through the door and this is how they're going to respond when they walk in that door. There's no way of knowing that. And if you get that one wrong, all of your premises are built on that one premise. And the newer, the newer model for planning is get out there, try it as quickly as possible, see how people respond, and then be flexible and recognize what's working and what's not, pivot and adjust to the way people are responding, and, and be don't be dogmatic that you're going to say that this is what we're going to do no matter what. I mean, you have to be true to yourself mm-hmm. and do what what makes sense for you, but you also have to recognize sometimes that this one assumption we had of how people were going to respond, it turns out it was way wrong and people didn't respond that way. And so you have to be capable of, of adjusting on the fly and, and continually updating and, and modifying how you do things. So do you have an example in your business of something you thought and then it became something different? It had to become something different? Yeah, when we, you know, we did that expansion that mm-hmm. you talked about earlier and we put we added not just the mill, but we added a dessert shop in the front of that space. And we um, we had hoped that people would really come in, see, get the food, and then see the dessert shop and go over to the dessert shop that just never worked out the way we had thought it was going to work, and the space just didn't work 
and just we tried to be open in the evening mm-hmm. as a place you would go for dessert after you went out for dinner somewhere else. That just never got traction, and so we decided to move that the pastry, the dessert cases into the and just kind of squeeze it in where we had it. And so we kind of remodeled our cafe and made more of a gauntlet that you had to walk before you got to the register mm-hmm. and make people walk past that plus the breakfast pastries before you got to place your order. And so that worked. But uh, that here again, how it worked wasn't quite what we thought it was going to work. Yeah. The, the dessert sales wasn't what went up when we, when we did that. Our, our sales went up. But it was, uh, we added a second register and made more people came and got bread, and it made us able to process the orders faster. And your speed at how fast you can process, how many, how many people can you service in one hour is a really, really big factor in what your sales can be in, a, in the food business. And if you you know, if you can do this much and, you know, your sales are here, it's this times that is mm-hmm. is what your maximum capacity is. doesn't matter if you have a line to the moon. Right. If, you if your speed is, is this, mm-hmm. your line is irrelevant and people right, don't right. get that in yeah, the foods yeah. business. But if your speed goes up, boom, your sales are going to go up. And right. so that's a really key factor in what your sales are going to be. Mm-hmm. And our speed went up. Mm-hmm. Based so, on that. so you could handle more people coming in, we, and then you had more space for people to sit. We had too, more right? space for people to sit. Yeah. So, so yeah. it worked, but not necessarily not in the way, the way that we thought, thought it was going to work. Isn't that funny? But good entrepreneurs are like that. It's not that it's as you said. It's not that they're they get everything right in the beginning. It's that they understand and adapt as as they're going right. If if you're not recognizing your mistakes, you're going to fail. Yeah. But if you're not making mistakes, you're never going to be great. Right, right. So, and you're never going to grow, prob- typically. You don't grow by doing the same old thing over and over again. You know, if you have a bucket of, if you have a portfolio of ideas, you know, some of your ideas are going to be good, just like a stock portfolio. Mm-hmm. Some of them are going to be duds. Mm-hmm. And if you don't find out which ones are duds, you're never going to find out which ones are, are the home run yeah. ideas. So how many employees do you have now? So when you bought the business, there were seven. Now how many do you have? I think have? we have about 55. 55. Holy cow. So that is an astonishing amount of growth in, in what, since 2012, you said? 2009 you is when we bought the company. You bought it in 2009, so, so eight, eight years. Eight years. And that's something. Yeah, it's... Um, I, I feel happy. I, you know, I feel really happy when I see employees buying a house or getting married or, you know, having yeah. kids, that kind of thing is really pretty mm-hmm. cool to so see. So you keep your employees for a long time, it sounds like. Yeah, we've got some people that have been there, and not everyone, but mm-hmm. we've got some people that have been there for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Do you have a philosophy about your employees? Because since you seem to have a philosophy <laughs> um, for a lot of things in your business. Um it's you know it's something we could probably do better mm-hmm. at, but um, yeah, I think you have to treat people well, and you have to if 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 in an industry where it is so hard to find people, um, you've got to be one of the top places where people want to be at, or mm-hmm. they you're not or because not every business is gonna if if there's a shortage of people, 
in the industry. Not which everyone, there is now, right? Which, which, yeah. is, which is acute right now. Right. Not everyone is going to experience that shortage in the same way. The people that are treating people the best are mm-hmm. going to experience that shortage the least. And people that are that are treating people the worst are going to experience that shortage the most. Mm-hmm. So I think that your vertically integrated business model is... And in your story of how you've built this is is a real um, success, and it's possible for lots of local businesses that want to stay local, right? I think so. Um, you have to be. I mean, you have to have a plan about how you're going to go about it. You know, what kind of vertical integration would make sense for mm-hmm. for everyone. Um, not many people would go all the way back to the kind of grain they're getting. You know, yeah. the degree to which you've done this is pretty astonishing. You know, we like having control over the quality of it. And so the, one of the ve- benefits you get is, you you know, now you can't complain about the, your supplier. Your miller anymore. You're, right? you're, you're, in, you're doing it. If it's not good, it's because you're not, you need to get better at it. So... Being in charge of that quality, if you're a quality-based business, that's a really nice thing to have access to that. Plus, if your specialty is here and you're doing this previous step, you're getting immediate feedback on it, and you can use that feedback, take that feedback to this prior process and use that knowledge to, to work on that, how you do that things, which most businesses, you're you're isolated from that, and you don't, Maybe maybe you tell your you know your supplier once in a while, boy, it'd be nice if you did this. But it's kind of like you don't want to complain to your suppliers, so you don't sure. really you don't really tell them everything that you know they could do better, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. But you know if you've got that process in house, man, if you're not if you can use that knowledge to really work on that process, and if you've got multiple steps in the process. That's a really powerful thing to have that much control, and and if you if you can if you can control the cost of it, then too, uh, it's a it's a really powerful thing. Yeah, it's also powerful because it's going to be really hard for somebody to copy what you're doing. That's you know that's a huge part of our philosophy. We don't want to be like anybody else. Mm-hmm. We even if we start with a recipe that is published or well-known, we're going to put our own twist on it every time. And mm-hmm. we might start here, but we're going to end up over here because we don't want, you know, this product to be like somebody else. There's nobody anywhere in the world that's got a product like this because we tweaked it and made it our own. So it's your product, but it's also your business model. I mean, you know, somebody getting into this now would have to replicate a lot, right, to just replicate your business model on top of the fact that they would have to have their own recipes for the bread, right? I mean, yeah. I mean it is a non-trivial thing to be milling and sourcing grain and making fabulous products and having this distribution channel that you have, the channels of distribution multiple that you have and you manage. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of business model innovation that has happened in your business. Um, it would be hard for somebody to replicate that. Yeah, it would be. Absolutely. You know, and, and that, you know, that gives us a lot of protection against ups and downs. And we're, you know, we've got We've got the farmer's market over here. We've got, you know, all these wholesale customers over there. So if there's road construction on this one street, it's not going to 
it's not going to have, it's not going to affect 100% of our business. It's only going to affect a small part of it. So it gives us some protection from something bad happening in this corner of the world. It's not going to affect all of our business. Too. Right. So there's a lot of resilience in your business yeah. model too. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like that idea of, um, a business model that is designed intentionally to bring that kind of resilience to your business because things, shit will happen, right? Yeah. yeah. Bad things will happen yeah. and you never know when it's going to happen. Um, but, um, but we tried to design it so that each part will, will, will not compete with, but will actually enhance the other part of the business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when you bought the business, was it profitable when you bought it, or was it kind of struggling when you bought it? Or you know, it would, when when you work with small companies, it's it's hard to know exactly <laughs> yeah. what you're what you're getting mm -hmm. because the accounting isn't always. Um, world-class accounting right, and gap, gap, right, gap accounting. accounting yeah. um, so it it's kind of hard to know mm -hmm. exactly what the situation was. But yeah, it was, it, we, we did a lot of back the envelope stuff and said, yeah, there's, we can work with this mm -hmm. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's part of this thing too, right? That, that making these local businesses work financially is, um, not always easy. And these it's not. Yeah. It's not. You know, we work with hundreds of local businesses, mm -hmm. and, you know, there's quite a, a non-trivial amount of people that kind of struggle to pay their bills, mm -hmm. and it's not because they're bad people. It's just because it's a tough business to to make a living and pay yourself a living wage and, and pay your customers or your suppliers. And, mm -hmm. um uh, and so, yeah, there's. I, I'm aware that there's a lot of local food businesses that financially are, are mm -hmm. kind of struggling to make it work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what I, I, one of the things that I've um, found really impressive about you is, is, um, and you're such a great example of of an entrepreneur who has been working intentionally on your business model, and part of the benefit of that is that it brings financial resilience to a business, right? Yeah, I think yeah. It, it definitely does. Yeah. Well, you're in business as many years as you have been, so, um, you know, you already told us that you didn't have piles of money in the bank when you started, so it's not you're in business because you've made this work financially yeah. over the years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and all the all that added layers to your vertical integration, every time you do that, it's kind of an opportunity to go backwards financially if you don't manage it well, right? Because you're taking on this big new dimension to your business. Yeah. It's part of why the business school people told you when in the beginning is you told me that, oh, you shouldn't be both a wholesale and a retail business. That won't work, right? Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it is two different mindsets. Mm -hmm. And, and, there's there's a lot of truth to that, but it's not. I mean, we at the scale we're at now, it's it's definitely doable. But you do have to kind of wear two hats. I mean, there are products that we design for just ourselves, and our our thinking on it is, we want to make the best 
eclair we can make. Mm-hmm. We want to make the best cream puff we can make, or mm-hmm. we want to make the best. I'm getting uh, so hungry. Yeah. yeah, the best cranberry walnut bread we can make for Thanksgiving. But it's a really expensive to make a cranberry walnut bread, and the ingredients on it just don't lend themselves to a wholesale product. And so there's certain things that we'll do just as an in-house special or just for our own in-house production where the mindset is how do you make the best damn Whatever, right. Whatever. But then when you're doing wholesale, you've got to think, okay, they're going to mark it up. It's got to have markup for us and for the buyer of this product. You can't be, I mean, it's not that we're not trying to make a great product, but it's got to, you've got to think about that cost structure. And so you've got to have a slightly different mindset when you're making wholesale products. And so some of our wholesale customers don't understand why we don't sell every single product that we sell in our cafe. And well, that's part of that is because we, it's just, it's not feasible to, to do that and uh, and we, you know the markup on it would make that cranberry walnut bread so crazy expensive you right. you you know what how much are you charging for that it just right. wouldn't work so so you have to you have to have a slightly different mindset for it but it can definitely work in in a small business with you know 50 employees it definitely works and you clearly have a really good handle on how much it costs to make whatever product it is that you make it, you know it it changes fairly often so this year we've seen a lot more uh, product increase than we've ever seen before so it's been a bit of a challenge mm-hmm. and I need to update I, you know I've gone through and updated most of our products but I'm not all the way there, but yeah, there's there. We try to keep a handle on that and and know what those, you know, what what where we're at with things. Absolutely, mm-hmm. it's important to know where your what your cost is on something. Do you kind of so so? It would be logical then that um, even though you're all you're structured all as one business, right? You don't have multiple businesses, but mm-hmm. but like when you mill flour, it's kind of like you're selling your flour to yourself in a way. Do you try to account for it that way, or do you do you just kind of blend it all in together? Um, for the mill, we haven't really worked too much about how we deal with that, but with it's it's a much bigger factor where we deal with um, the the bakery supplying products that are sold in their cafe because mm-hmm. there's a huge you know it, with the mill we're just kind of factoring as this is it's basically like another step in the process that's not really of that the bakery different. process it's not yeah. that different from mixing dough mm-hmm. as it is to mill the grain right. if we ever did start selling flour on a on a large scale then we'd probably have to separate that out but we have different classes in our accounting for uh for the bakery for the caf for the cafe for the vending that we do so we've got three different classes mm-hmm. and we do transfers internally from the bakery to the cafe and it's always a big question when you do those internal transfers is that what 
what's the price that you charge that when you do those transfers? Do you do your right. standard you price? Yourself? Do you yeah. give them a, uh, you know, if then the one that's buying it is going to revolt and say, well, that's not fair. Mm-hmm. That's Why should all the profit go to that side and not to us? You know, and, and if should they get a discount of best customer? You know, so we do basically... Um, Best customer minus 10% Mm -hmm. is kind of how we do that transfer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that helps you sort out when you're, you know, you're developing products, um, you know, because you sell sandwiches and things in the cafe, right? It helps you manage your cost of goods sold for all those items to know what those transfer costs are. Yeah. It it does help you to know where you're at. Right. Um, If you don't. You're, if you're blind on that, you're going to make some bad decisions. Mm-hmm. Well, and you have to decide, am I going to, I have, you know, a limited amount of capacity to make bread. Am I going to sell it to other people or am I going to sell it in my cafe? And, and you know what I mean? You, so that helps you make really good decisions the way you've structured that. That's terrific. But we, we, also, we also have products that we do in fairly large volume relative to other things that um, that, you know, if you have creative people, they've got to have a creative outlet. And we have, um, you know, certain things that we'll do in really small batches that we're probably losing money on, but it's, it's part of the give this creative person an uh, outlet to be as creative as possible and make a small batch of the best whatever or or once one a one-off that mm-hmm. is just fun to play with mm-hmm. and you've got this other thing that you do in volume that's kind of helping to pay for this play that you do over here that's mm-hmm. making you happy because you need this outlet to to do this creative thing so well and ergo the your ability to keep good people right get yeah. you recognize that they're multiple dimensions to all of this. Yeah. Yeah. So what's in store for Madison Sourdough in the future? Um, That's a good question. I think we've kind of, we're kind of bumping up against some of the limits of our space. I think when we, when we set up the mill room, we kind of put more we made that mill room bigger than it needed to be to do milling. Mm. And We've got kind of an excess amount of space in there. Mm-hmm. We've got a really tight space on the other side of that wall where we're making pastries and, and bread and where our our dishwashers are working. And I think what would probably, one of the things we're, we'd consider doing at some point would be kind of reconfiguring, reconfiguring that so that the mill room is a little more tight but brings in some other processes that free up space on the other part of the bakery. Mm-hmm. Probably another bread oven is going to be something that would really... In your future. Yeah. Yeah. Because on market day, our bakers are coming in at 10 p.m., and it's it's a limitation baking on... Baking all night. To bake, start baking bread at 10 o'clock in the morning. Wow. If we had... Um, a second bread oven that would take a lot of pressure off mm-hmm. on the b- bread baking side and would give us the possibility of 
expanding some things. And do you think consumers, do you, can you see cons your customer and consumers in general um, learning more about bread and embracing what you do more and more? Yeah, I think so. Well, to go back to the last question, one of the other things that we just started recently is we started doing a test on a sliced sandwich bread at a, in a grocery store. And that's something we had never done until a month ago. Hmm. And we were testing it at one store, and it's been a phenomenal um, result from the first month of testing at one store. So, um, so that's something that's probably going to have a really big impact on our, our overall wholesale business and once we roll that out to all the grocery stores, or at least most of the grocery stores that we sell to. There's this incremental, um, intentional management of growth in your business that comes from you and, and your partner um, that I've observed over the years that is incredibly powerful. You guys are, you know, you're always inventing and thinking about the new things. And then you kind of sift, you must have a mechanism for doing this, even if it's in, if, even if it's not intentionally designed, right? You go through a process and optimize it, and you're very methodical about how you do it, and you test it, and, and then you then you implement it. It's an impressive thing about your business. You know, there are always going to be mistakes, and lo the logistical details, you know, if you jump in with both feet and you get it wrong, it can be a really deadly thing for you. But if you can try it out and test it on a small scale and make your mistakes on a small scale, fine-tune it at that stage of the game and then start going bigger, it's going to, your, your risk is just much lower than mm -hmm. if you just jumped in with both feet on everything you do. And mm -hmm. we have we have some people that want us to go faster, that wish we would just jump in there. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I'm, I'm a deliberate person. Drew is a deliberate person. We like to think things through. A lot of times things will Isn't that a characteristic of bakers? I, I don't know, but I, you know, you know I like to think about are, things for, things mm -hmm. will roll around in my head for a month, and after mm -hmm. thinking about it for weeks, I'll think of something that I hadn't thought of right away, mm -hmm. and not everybody is like that, I guess, but... Um, you know, chefs, the little bit of this, little bit of that, and then the bakers are very precise, right? Very it's, precise. It's why yeah. I am not a good baker. I'm, I'm definitely it's, a chef. I'm not a baker. It's yeah. very scientific, yeah. and it's very, um, you know, you measure everything to the gram, and you have you, you, do, you, you can fine-tune things by changing this one variable, but you don't change a whole bunch at the same time because you can't see how the result is going to be if you change everything at once. So. Yeah, and you kind of have that philosophy in how you have um, developed your business over time, and it's very impressive. It's such a pleasure to talk to you today and to, um, to work with you over the years because your business is making such a difference in terms of all the people who eat your products, but also what your business is doing for agriculture in the state and just creating products and markets for things that um, didn't have either one of those things. And farmers are really good at growing stuff. They are not necessarily really good at bringing things to market. So 
we're very grateful in the state to have you and Madison Sourdough here. Well, thank you. We're happy to be part of this moment in time when there's a lot of really fun things happening in the food world. Yeah, it's amazing. Amazing. So thank you so much. And um, I look forward to learning more in the next few years about what's next at Madison Sourdough. Thanks. Great. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.